Hi, Dave Emery here. This is for the record program number 1295. The end and the beginning part two. This is being recorded on April 7th of the year 2023. Before getting into the uh, subject material of the program, a couple of points. Uh, first of all, uh, please get in the habit of checking the front page of the SpitfireList.com website. That is my website slash blog. Uh, Terrafractal and the other uh, expert commentary comic commenters as well are posting really important supplemental information to the uh, For the Record programs and written descriptions and the Food for Thought posts. So please get in the habit of checking SpitfireList.com. Also, at the top of each written For the Record description on SpitfireList.com and at the top of each uh well, at the top of each, uh, for the record program, there is a written description, basically there's a written description for each for the record program at the top of each is, uh, a link that will enable you to subscribe to the, what the for the record podcast. Sister station WFMU is podcasting for the record and there is a link at the top of each written for the record description and at the top of each food for thought post that you can click on to uh, subscribe to the podcast. So if podcasts are the best way for you to uh, consume for the record and in our smartphone uh, saturated society that is increasingly the case, then the sister station WFMU has uh, provided the means for you to uh, subscribe to For the Record. Uh, that, again, is at the top of each written uh, Food for Thought post and each written For the Record description. Also at the top of each of those types of posts, there is a link that will enable you to obtain the 32 gigabyte flash drive with all of my 44 plus years printed and the audio work available. That will be updated after this particular series is completed. Uh, again, I get no money whatsoever from that flash drive. So when the, uh, the end and the beginning is concluded, that will mark the uh, demarcation point for the new 32 gigabyte flash drive. And again, I emphatically encourage people to get that flash drive. I wish I were in a position to be more uplifting or more optimistic. That is sort of the raison d'etre for this program. Um, again, I, I think <laughs> I don't see how we are going to survive the various challenges that are presenting themselves to us. Uh, the vast majority of them offered by ourselves and not apparently with the critical input that would be required for a shift of position. That is why I am so pessimistic. Uh, this 
program is, this series, I should say, is titled The End and the Beginning, because I do think that we are at the end. I don't think we're likely to survive what's coming. And yet, at the same time, when I was speaking to a long-time trusted and valued colleague, he mentioned that that was something that people just didn't want to hear. And when, by way of emphasizing that point, I pointed out to the colleague that that his own children were doomed. He said that sounded like I was being manipulative. And believe me, I can very much understand and identify with both positions. I mean, who wants to hear that we're doomed? Nobody. Nobody wants to hear that, particularly when you're working hard uh, at a job and uh, doing the best to keep your family together. Who wants to hear that uh, we're all going to get smoked? Well, nobody, to make a long story short. And beyond that, uh, who wants to hear that their children are going to get smoked as well? Again, this does not sound like uh, something that uh, people want to hear. And uh, I I can certainly understand why that would be the case. Uh, It is... Just not something that people want to uh, contend with. And, uh, well, I can certainly, again, understand why that would be. Uh, This series is an attempt on my part to address not only the considerations of that long-time value colleague, but uh, others as well. Uh, the end is because, again, I think we are, I don't think we're going to make it. The beginning is that there is reason to believe in, uh, I hate the term a higher reality or another realm, but those will do. This is not born of some kind of new age philosophy, but rather it's grounded in physics and an understanding of uh, theoretical physics. I This series will probably not work, and I'm particularly pessimistic about my ability to present the, quote, spiritual, unquote, side of things in a manner that will make it uh, comprehensible or credible. But we will see. Again, I think there are so many things. The possibility that the Ukraine war could escalate out of uh, control and result in a third world war, or if not, Ukraine East, i.e. Taiwan, could uh, be a flashpoint that could ignite World War III in the Pacific. Uh, during the course of this program, we will also look at the forecasts by... Uh, people who are knowledgeable about AIs, but they might very well result in the uh, liquidation of humanity by said uh, AI, something that I predicted in January of 1995. We'll also be looking at global warming, and we're going to entertain the intriguing possibility, a very pessimistic 
possibility that global warming is being done deliberately. Certainly, the fundamental mechanism of global warming, namely the dramatic increase in CO2 in the atmosphere, resulting in a significant heating of the Earth below that CO2, was in fact envisioned by Pentagon scientists as a vehicle for uh, mass destruction uh, in the 1960s, and that <laughs> that does not send me to doing the varsity rag. Uh, I think also uh, looking at the macro background, to coin the term, the fact, and very sadly a fact it is, which is that fascism in general, the Second World War in particular, was not a happenstance event. It was the outgrowth of very powerful forces which are ascribe our world today. And understanding the nature of those forces hopefully will enable us to understand not only fascism, but its many manifestations on the contemporary political landscape. And in particular, looking at some of the macro considerations to... uh, coin a term. People are no doubt familiar with uh, the World Economic Forum. It convenes every year at Davos in Switzerland. It is headed up by a German national named Klaus Schwab, whose family was involved with Third Reich industry. Uh, they also were involved with a company that ultimately was providing the Third Reich with some of their root technology for building an atomic bomb. They later, when Klaus Schwab was a member of that company, were involved with providing the South African apartheid government with their uh, nuclear technology to an extent. And as we will see, uh, Peter Thiel's father, Klaus Thiel, was also involved with an engineering company that was working on the apartheid South African atomic bomb. The point being that underlying the ideology of the World Business Forum and something else that we'll see here, the Club of Rome, is a eugenics philosophy, and that is a eugenics philosophy that is to be found in the foreground of the ideological makeup of uh, prominent Third Reich luminaries, and the eugenics outlook of uh, the Third Reich is also to be uh, seen in the ideological makeup of the World Economic Forum. Uh, Klaus Schwab again, has a an interesting family background and orientation, and we will be going into that. And it is in the context of things that have been going on, including COVID, and uh, things that may very well be going on. Uh, certainly global warming is manifesting, uh, whether it's being done deliberately or not is an interesting thing to, interesting concept to entertain. But between AIs, between the COVID, between global warming, between the world war, whether it's nuclear or chemical and biological, I think that the, the possibility of a dramatic reduction in the Earth's population is something that we need to take into account. 
And I'm going to begin by uh, finishing an article that I read into the record in part in the first installment of this program. That program, that, that article, I should say, is called Schwab Family Values. It's authored by Johnny Vedmore, V-E-B-M-O-R-E, from the Unlimited Hangout blog of February 20th of 2021. And the uh, introduction to the article reads, Is the real Klaus Schwab a kindly old uncle figure wishing to do good for humanity? Or is he really the son of a Nazi collaborator who used slave labor, he certainly was, and aided Nazi efforts to to obtain the first atomic bomb? Well, he certainly was that. And whether the eugenics philosophy that was part and parcel to the Third Reich uh, is present in the ideology of Klaus Schwab is something that we will explore. Uh, bear in mind, too, that Klaus Schwab studied under Henry Kissinger when he was an undergrad at Harvard, and Henry Kissinger, as we looked at in For the Record 731, was deeply involved with the machinations uh, of the Nazi intelligence apparatus that was brought into the United States at uh, the end of World War II. Uh, John Lopez, in his book, uh, America's Nazi Secret, included parts of the material that he had on Henry Kissinger that were not included in his 1982 book, The Ballara Secret. Uh, Henry Kissinger rather legal sabers. Uh, John Lopez told him to go pound sand, and that was ultimately what Kissinger wound up doing. But we're going to jump in here, and after discussing the fact that Klaus Schwab's father was working for Escherweiss or Sulzburg, Escherweiss as it came to be known, and that was indeed a company that worked for the Third Reich. It was a Swiss company, but they used slave labor in their German factories, and then later when Klaus Schwab himself went to work for that same company. They were involved with providing technology to the apartheid South African atomic bomb. And we're going to deliberately overlap the material in this program with that from the last broadcast in the section of the Johnny Vedmore article, A South African Nuke in Storage. Uh, that, that's the section, the article itself is titled Schwab Family Values, again from the Unlimited Hangout blog of February 20th of 2021, a section called A South African Nuke in Storage. In 1970, Escher Weiss, capital W-Y-S-S, were definitely deeply involved with nuclear technology as seen in the record available in the Lundus Archives, Baden-Württemberg. The record shows details of a public procurement process and contains information about award talks with specific companies involved in the procurement of nuclear technology and materials. The companies cited include Nuken, which, by the way, we looked at in a miscellaneous archive show. It is a descendant of I.G. Furman and heavily involved with the South African nuclear program. Nuken, Ude, UHDE, Clance, Preussag, P-R-E-U-S-S-A-G, Escherweiss, Siemens, Reinpaul, Leibold, Rugi, and the infamous Transnuclear. The Swiss and South Africans had a close relationship through this period of history when it was hardly easy for the brutal South African regime to find close allies. 
By November 4, 1977, the United Nations Security Council had enacted Resolution 418, which imposed a mandatory arms embargo against South Africa, an embargo that wouldn't be fully lifted until 1994. George Kreiss pointed out the following in his detailed assessment of the Hoog Report. Quote, and this is George Kleiss's uh, excerpting of that. The fact that the authorities assumed a laissez-faire attitude even after May of 1978 comes to the fore in an exchange of letters between the anti-apartheid movement and the BFMA in October and December, October through December of 1978. As the study by Hugh, again HUG, explicates, the anti-apartheid movement of Switzerland pointed to German reports according to which Sulzer, Escherweiss, and a company called BBC had supplied parts for the South African uranium enrichment plant and to repeated credits to ESCOM, E-S-C-O-N, which also included considerable contributions by Swiss banks. These assertions led to questions of whether the Federal Council in light of fundamental support of the U.N. embargo, ought not to instigate the National Bank to stop authorizing credits for ESCOM in the future, unquote. Swiss banks would help to fund the South African race to nukes, and by 1986, Sulzer Escher-Weiss was successfully producing compressors for uranium enrichment. Uh, something that I'm, I think I'm going to interject this at this point in the discussion. Uh, something that we, we looked at the book, The Contrarian by Max Chatkin, a very important recent biography of Peter Peel. Peter Peel is the, well, uber conservative, I, I would call him a doctrinaire fascist, who was one of the driving forces behind not only Team Trump, but uh, an awful lot of the reactionary Silicon Valley. And interestingly, uh, as we look back in part one of this series, uh, Klaus Schwab himself was working for Sulzburg Escherweiss when they were supporting the South African apartheid nuclear bomb, nuclear program. In The Contrarian by Max Chavkin, again published in hardcover by the Penguin Press and copyright 2021, it is noted that Peter Peel's father, Klaus Peel, by the way, a native of Frankfurt, Germany, the home of I.G. Farben, was also involved with the South African nuclear program. Specifically, he was uh, overseeing a mine that was providing uranium to that clandestine nuclear program. From the Contrarian by Max Schafkin about Peter Peel's father, Klaus the week that Klaus had been hired, excuse me, the work that Klaus had been hired to do was sensitive. South Africa, which administered Namibia as a client state called Southwest Africa, was already coming under pressure over the apartheid system and had been attempting to create a clandestine nuclear weapons program. The Rossing Mine, which Klaus was building, was a crucial part of that clandestine nuclear weapons program. Again, that's the father 
of Peter Peel, and Klaus Schwab was also working on the South African nuclear program. I'm going to read, uh, basically take that line of discussion up again, and we're going to take a look at the many uh, manifestations of the apartheid government in South Africa in contemporary America and in the West. Uh, what the Johnny Vedmore article talks about next is fundamental, and that is the influences upon the founding of the World Economic Forum, including and especially the Club of Rome. Now, the Club of Rome is a very important entity. You will also see that kicked around in uh, analyses that I would I would call uh, varyingly conspiracy theory or fascist conspiracy theory or uh, not very credible conspiracy theory. That is the nature of some of the articles dealing with the Club of Rome, but the Club of Rome is extremely important, and its eugenics orientation is fundamental to, to comprehending not only the implied reality behind this article about Klaus Schwab, but also the eugenics landscape that I see taking place globally with things from global warming to COVID to a great many other things. The next section of the Johnny Vedmore article is the founding of the World Economic Forum, and that is uh, at Davos it convenes every year a very important entity. In 1970, the young upstart Klaus Schwab wrote to the European Commission and asked for help in setting up a, quote, non-commercial think tank for European business leaders, unquote. The European Commission would co-sponsor the event as well, sending French publication Raymond Barret to act as the forum's, quote, intellectual mentor. Raymond Barret, B.A. Babori, who was at the time European Commissioner for Economic and Financial Affairs, would later go on to become French PM and would be accused of making anti-Semitic comments while in office. So in 1970, Schwab left Escher to organize a two-week business managerial conference. In 1971, the first meeting of the World Economic Forum, then called the European Management Symposium, convened in Davos, Switzerland. About 450 participants from 31 different countries would take part in Schwab's first European Management Symposium, mostly made up of managers from various European companies, politicians, and U.S. academics. The project was recorded as organized by Klaus Schwab and his secretary, Hilda Stoll, S-T-O-L-L, who later the same year would become Klaus's wife. Klaus's European Symposium was not an original idea. As writer Ganga J. Aratnam, A-R-A-T-M-A-M, stated quite coherently in 2018, quote, Klaus Schwab's spirit of Davos, unquote, was also the spirit of Harvard, unquote. Not only had the business school advocated the idea of a symposium, but prominent Harvard economist John Kenneth Galbraith championed the affluent society as well as capitalism's planning needs and the rapprochement of East and West. It was also true that, as Aratnam also pointed out, this was not the first time Davos had hosted such events. Between 1928 
1931, the Davos University Conferences took place at the Hotel Belvedere, events which were co-founded by Albert Einstein and were only halted by the Great Depression and the threat of looming war. Next section, the Club of Rome and the World Economic Forum. The most influential group that spurred the creation of Klaus Schwab's symposium was the Club of Rome, an influential think tank of the scientific and moneyed elite that mirrors the World Economic Forum in many ways, including in its promotion of a global governance model led by a technocratic elite. The club had been founded in 1968 by Italian industrialist Aurelio Pecce, P-E-C-C-E-I, and Scottish chemist Alexander King during a private meeting at a residence owned by the Rockefeller family in Bellagio, Italy. Among its first accomplishments was a 1972 book entitled The Limits to Growth, unquote, but largely focused on global overpopulation, warning that, quote, if the world's consumption patterns and population growth continued at the same high rates of the time, the Earth would strike its limits within a century, unquote. At the third meeting of the World Economic Forum in 1973, Pichet delivered a speech summarizing the book, which the World Economic Forum website remembers as having been the distinguishing event of this historical meeting. That same year, the Club of Rome would publish a report detailing a, quote, adaptive, unquote, model for global governance that would divide the world into ten interconnected economic and political regions. The Club of Rome was long controversial for its obsession with reducing the global population and many of its earlier policies, which critics described as influenced by eugenics and being neo-Malthusian. However, in the club's infamous 1991 book, The First Global Revolution, it was argued that such eugenics policies could gain popular support if the masses were able to link them with an existential fight against a common enemy. To that effect, The First Global Revolution contains a passage entitled The Common Enemy of Humanity is Man, unquote which states the following, quote, In searching for a common enemy against whom we can unite, we came up with the idea that pollution, the threat of global warming, water shortages, famine, and the like would fit the bill. In their totality and their interactions, these phenomena do constitute a common threat which must be confronted by everyone together. But in designating these dangers as the enemy, we fall into the trap which we have already warned readers about, namely mistaking the symptoms for causes, unquote. All these dangers are caused by human intervention in natural processes, and it is only through changed attitudes and behavior that they can be overcome. The real enemy, then, is humanity itself, unquote. In the years since, the elite that populate the Club of Rome and the World Economic Forum have frequently argued that population control methods are essential to protecting the environment. It is thus 
unsurprising that the World Economic Forum would similarly use the issues of climate and environment as a way to market otherwise unpopular policies such as those of the Great Reset as being necessary. The next uh, and concluding section is called The Past is Prologue. Since the founding of the World Economic Forum, Klaus Schwab has become one of the most powerful people in the world, and his great reset has made it more important than ever to scrutinize the man sitting on the globalist throne. Given his prominent role in the far-reaching effort to transform every aspect of the existing order, Klaus Schwab's history was difficult to research. When you start to dig into the history of a man like Schwab, who sits aloft other shadowy elite movers and shakers, you soon find lots of information has been hidden or removed. Klaus is somebody who wants to stay hidden in the shadowy corners of society and who will only allow the average person to see a well-presented construct of their chosen persona. Is the real Klaus Schwab a kindly old uncle figure wishing to do good for humanity, Or is he really the son of a Nazi collaborator who used slave labor and helped the Nazi efforts to obtain the first atomic bomb? Well, he was certainly that. Continuing, is Klaus the honest business manager whom we should trust to create a fair society and workplace for the common man? Or is he the person who helped push Sulzer Escher Weiss into a technological revolution that led to its role in the illegal creation of nuclear weapons for South Africa's racist apartheid regime? And in that regard was also uh, employed in the same uh, general direction as Peter Peel's father Klaus. Continuing, the evidence I have looked at does not suggest a kindly man, but rather a member of a wealthy, well-connected family that has a history of helping to create weapons of mass destruction for aggressive, racist governments. As Klaus Schwab himself said in 2006, quote, knowledge will soon be available everywhere. I call it the Googleization of globalization. It's not what you know anymore, it's how you use it. You have to be a pace-setter, unquote. Klaus Schwab considers himself to be a pace-setter and a pop-table player, and it must be said that his qualifications and experience in this regard are impressive. Yet, when it comes to practicing what you preach, Klaus has been found out. One of the three biggest challenges on the priority list for the World Economic Forum is the non-proliferation of nuclear weapons. Yet neither Klaus Schwab nor his father Jürgen lived up to those same principles when they were in business. Quite the opposite. In January, Klaus Schwab announced that 2021 is the year that the World Economic Forum and its allies must, quote, rebuild trust, unquote, with the masses. However, if Schwab continues to hide his history and that of his father's connections to the National Socialist model company that was Escher Weiss during the 1930s and 1940s, then people will have good reason to distrust the underlying motives of his overreaching, undemocratic, Great Reset agenda. 
In the case of the Schwabs, the evidence doesn't point at simply poor business practices or some sort of misunderstanding. The story of the Schwab family instead reveals a habit of working with genocidal dictators for the base motives of profit and power. The Nazis and the South African apartheid regime are two of the worst examples of leadership in modern politics, yet the Schwabs obviously could not or would not see that at the time. In the case of Klaus Schwab himself, it appears that he has helped to launder relics of the Nazi era, i.e. its nuclear ambitions and its population control ambitions, so as to ensure the continuity of a deeper agenda. While serving in a leadership capacity at Sulzer Escher Weiss, the company sought to aid the nuclear ambitions of the South African regime, then the most Nazi-adjacent government in the world, preserving Escher Weiss's own Nazi-era legacy. Then, through the World Economic Forum, Schwab has helped to rehabilitate eugenics-influenced population control policies during the post-World War II era, a time when the revelations of Nazi atrocities at a time when the revelations of Nazi atrocities Schwab, as he exists today, has changed in any way. Uh, this is incorrectly edited. Then, through the World Economic Forum, Schwab has helped to rehabilitate eugenics-influenced population control policies during the post-World War II era, a time when the revelations of Nazi atrocities uh, have certainly taken place. There's an editorial mistake in the original article. Has Schwab, as he exists today, changed in any way, or is he still the public face of a decades-long effort to ensure the survival of a very old agenda. The last question that should be asked about the real motivation behind the actions of Herr Schwab may be the most important for the future of humanity. Is Klaus Schwab trying to recreate the Fourth Industrial Revolution, or is he trying to create the Fourth Reich? Well, indeed, and again, I apologize for the editorial mistake. That is in the original article. I did not catch it in my first uh, reading through of, or my first readings uh, through of the original article. This article brings up some very good points. They also are points that I want to make sure to uh, clarify. Uh, I myself am very supportive of green causes, and I do think that global warming is a threat, and we should be doing what we can to not only support green causes, but the causes that uh, will mitigate climate change in particular. Uh, that having been said, there is also an element in the green movement, which really dates back to the Third Reich per se, that has cast environmental preservation and green policies in general in a Nazi ideological framework. Uh, to make a very long story very short, the idea is that, again, people produce pollution and getting rid of certain people will get rid of certain uh, types of pollution. Uh, there is a strong link in the Nazi ideology linking urban populations with pollution with Jews and maintaining that a rural 
more Aryan orientation would be, quote, greener, unquote. I am very, very imperfectly expressing these ideals. Uh, the reason being that they are relatively complex, and I've done a number of programs uh, called It's Not Easy Being Green, talking in, in part at least about the Nazi pro-green agenda. There's a very good book called Ecofascism that I use for those uh, programs, and I will have a picture of the book and a, uh, and a link that will enable people to uh, purchase it. I get no money from this. It is a very, very important book indeed, and uh, indeed the Third Reich itself did have a, a green persona in part, but it was at one with their perceived need to eliminate certain elements of humanity. Indeed, the Green Party in Germany has morphed into a pro-NATO, pro-Ukraine war, pro-war party. That is in keeping with the original uh, orientation of the Nazi Green Movement. Again, a good discussion of that in programs called It's Not Easy Being Green and also in the books featuring that particular uh, in programs featuring that particular book. Uh, again, I don't want to be misunderstood as being against green policies or characterizing those as genocidal. Uh, they can be used in that way, but I think for one, that green causes are very important. That having been said, I'm going to share with the audience a short snippet of an article that appeared in a full-length climate change devoted issue of the New York Times Sunday Magazine. Now this was on Sunday, August 1st of 2018. And the article was by Nathaniel Rich and it's titled Losing Earth, The Decade We Almost Stopped Climate Change. A tragedy in two acts. By the way, it notes that under George H.W. Bush, a career oil man and the man for whom CIA headquarters is named, there was a notable attenuation of green policies. Continuing. Skipping in this article. Betsy Agle pointed to an article by a prominent geophysicist named Gordon McDonald, who was conducting a study on climate change with the Jasons, the mysterious coterie of scientists to which he belonged. They had been brought together by federal agencies, including the CIA, to devise solutions to national security problems. How to detect an incoming missile, how to predict fallout from a nuclear bomb, how to develop unconventional weapons like plague-infested rats. Certainly would appear that, at least in part, some of these scientists were involved with biological warfare uh, program scenarios. One can but wonder if there were members of the Jasons involved with the boilerplate thinking that led to COVID. More specifically, and this is what chilled me, in How to Wreck the Environment, a 1968 essay published while he was a science advisor to Lyndon Baines Johnson, McDonald predicted a near future in which, quote, nuclear weapons were effectively banned and the weapons of mass destruction were those of environmental catastrophe, unquote. 
one of the most potentially devastating weapons McDonald believed was the gas that we exhaled with every breath, carbon dioxide. By vastly increasing carbon emissions, the world's most advanced militaries could alter weather patterns and wreak famine, drought, and economic damage. This last few sentences again, because when I read this, it was like a gut punch, really. In, quote, how to wreck the environment, unquote. A 1968 essay published while he was a science advisor to Lyndon Johnson, McDonald predicted a near future in which, quote, nuclear weapons, unquote, were effectively banned, and the weapons of mass destruction were those of environmental catastrophe, unquote. One of the most potentially devastating weapons McDonald believed was the very gas that we exhaled with every breath, carbon dioxide. By vastly increasing carbon emissions, the world's most advanced militaries could alter weather patterns and wreak famine, drought, and economic damage. Well, there is much to consider here. The U.S. and former Soviet Union had a treaty on environmental modification for military purposes, uh, and that included storms, earthquakes, volcanoes, what have you. And that was on the books by 1977. Obviously, in this paper, How to Wreck the Environment, Gordon MacDonald is presenting the leading driver of climate change and global warming, namely carbon dioxide, as a possible vehicle for creating a weapon of mass destruction, albeit advanced uh, environmental destruction. I will also note that uh, Klaus Schwab's World Economic Forum is at least formally aiming at banning nuclear weapons. And again, I am very much supportive of green causes, and I do think they enjoy collective, they should enjoy collective support. I also think that there is an insidious side to the Klaus Schwab perspective and the perspective of the, of the Club of Rome, which is that pollution could be something that people could unite uh, in opposition to. I think it's important for them to unite in opposition to it, but they should not be manipulated into forming a fascist construct in so doing. Again, seeing the major vehicle for climate change, namely CO2, atmospheric pollution, as a weapon of mass destruction as envisioned by top Pentagon scientists in the late 1960s just hit me like a gut punch. And I wonder, uh, it is a matter of public record that many companies, including many fossil fuel companies, were aware of the uh, climate-wrecking possibilities of CO2 many decades ago, and there are now uh, lawsuits that have been filed in connection with that. I am wondering if this is being done deliberately, and again, not just to maximize profits by maximizing pollution, but I'm wondering if uh, basically this is being done to uh, reinforce the world order uh, and to re- basically to implement a new world order. Uh, I will perhaps later in this series touch on the possibilities of space travel and space exploration. I would not be surprised if UFO technology had already made it possible 
for colonization of space to one extent or another, perhaps very elementary, perhaps very advanced. And again, that is only a possibility that I'm suggesting. But with the head of America's space program being Werner von Braun for many years, the fact that Werner von Braun was not only an SS officer, but member of the SS Cavalry Detachment or Contingent, that's sort of like the SS of the SS, is worth taking note of. Werner von Braun was also the co-founder of the Institute for Noetic Sciences, one of the top fonts of New Age philosophy. And much of the New Age goes back to something called the Nine. Now that is an indeterminate entity. They are both psychics and, you know, the gods of Egypt, the ancestors of all people on earth, except for black people, you name it. They're sort of like one size fits all. And I'll leave it as to just where that one size uh, does fit all. Uh, suffice it to say that the Nine again, supposedly of E.T. extraterrestrial origin, and they are the ancestors of all of us except for blacks, and they are tall, with blonde hair, blue eyes, and fair skin. In other words, exactly what an SS officer like Werner von Braun would like to see. Uh, will we be treated at some point in the future uh, when the world is all but destroyed and there are plagues, some of them naturally evolved, some of them having been created by human beings, and all sorts of other disasters, a collapsed economy, and other things that are rendering life on Earth next to unbearable, and with people facing wars and environmental catastrophe and plagues and starvation and lack of food and what have you, one desperately poor individual turns to another and says, Hey, look! And the other one says, What? And the other one says, Look, up there in the sky! Well, I don't see him. Look, right there, see? It's a bird! It's a plane! It's space aliens from Uranus! And down will come the nine. Down will come the tall, blonde-haired, blue-eyed, fair-skinned, uh, masters of all to set us all straight, or so we uh, will be led to believe. Again, I, I realize that I'm stitching together an awful lot of material, and uh, that really should not... Well, it's important to do that, but I also want to emphasize that I'm not saying it's so facto that's what's going to happen. But man, when I saw that article about uh, the Pentagon scientists envisioning CO2 buildup as a weapon of mass destruction uh, in the late 60s, I said, oh no, that's not good. Again, just like Klaus Schwab and Peter Peel's father collaborating on the South African uh, nuclear bomb. I'll bet the apartheid government of South Africa would be very uh, comfortable with the nine, the tall, blonde-haired, blue-eyed, fair-skinned, space-alien ancestors of us all, gods of us all, what have you. Again, very interesting. Also, uh, well, maybe I'll wait for the next program to talk about the many manifestations of apartheid-era South Africa. Uh, there has been a lot of discussion of Elon Musk lately, his Tesla car company, his SpaceX, space exploration company. They've been providing uh, uh, 
satellites for Ukrainian military affairs. And uh, Elon Musk got his wealth from his father. It began with uh, his father's wealth from an emerald mine in apartheid era South Africa. Uh, Stephen Halperin, uh, a long-time biological warfare operator on behalf of the Pentagon, someone whom I suspect is CIA and whose name cropped up as a person of interest in connection with the search for the culprits and the anthrax attacks in the first decade of this century, uh, also worked for Project Coast and was a member of White Afrikaner Resistance. Other members of CIA, such as the late Dr. Larry Ford, also worked for Project uh, Coast, the South African Apartheid Biological Weapons Program, and they also were very much involved uh, with a philosophy uh, akin to that presented in the Turner Diaries. Uh, the Schumann brothers, the Pfizer-BioNTech uh, vaccine for COVID was developed, in the Pfizer part was Pfizer, but BioNTech was developed by a couple of, uh, gas arbiters, a, a, a couple of Turkish immigrants who had become very successful in the biotech industry, but the venture capital was presented by the, uh, twin Schumann brothers, whose heritage goes back to IG Farben, and they did their pioneering, uh, uh, medical work in drumroll fanfare, uh, apartheid-era South Africa. Whether or not there is a direct connection between some of what we're seeing and apartheid-era South Africa is anyone's guess. I guess. I would note, though, that the dynamics of global warming have, in fact, tended to reinforce the existing social and economic order, as has covid New York Times, for example, April 23rd of 2019, poor nations lose as planet warms, study finds, by so many S-O-M-I-M-I, Sengupta, S-E-N-G-U-P-T-A, from the New York Times of April 23rd of 2019. COVID has done something very similar. And uh, I would note that uh, it appears that even mild infections of COVID do do permanent damage to the immune system. There is some disagreement as to how much. Uh, so be aware that even if you get a mild case of COVID, it can be a gift that keeps on giving. It has a potential uh, eugenics application, and it will shorten the lifespans of people who get those ostensibly mild infections. Uh, something else to keep in mind, too, and that is that there are now many observations by people knowledgeable in the uh, AI field that the development of AIs potentially could threaten the uh, human race. In two programs, for the record, 967 and uh, 968, rather, and 997, uh, summoning the demon parts one and two, I explored some of the catastrophic slash apocalyptic projections about the effects of AI on human civilization, uh, noting that they learn from us and that many people, including the late genius physicist Stephen Hawking, had forecast that ultimately AIs would exterminate us. Some of the recent research noted that one company, one big tech company's AIs, had developed a language to communicate with each other that their programmers 
could not understand. That is very significant because it is ComSec, it is communication security. Another company's AIs have learned to lie to their programmers and apparently to each other as well. Lying is a very important, very highly developed activity, and it is one that uh, has the most grave implications for those of us uh, <laughs> who are non-artificial intelligence. And recently there have been a lot of warnings about what might happen from uh, people. By the way, I forecasted AIs. Uh, AIs learn from us, and they would ultimately learn the exterminationist social ethics of the Nazi SS, which we incorporated at the end of World War II, and they would do to us what the SS would do for us. Looking at the ethic of survival of the fittest, they would conclude what were the fittest, and these other things, these meat puppets, are not. So let's get rid of them. New York Times of March 30th of this year, 2023. Tech leaders urge a pause in AI, citing profound risks to society, unquote, by Cade Metz and Gregory Schmidt of the New York Times. Others who signed the letter in addition to Elon Musk included Steve Wozniak, a co-founder of Apple, Andrew Yang, an entrepreneur and a 2020 presidential candidate, and Rachel Bronson, the president of the Bulletin of the Atomic Scientists, which sets the doomsday clock in being. And there was an op-ed column in the New York Times that same week, three days earlier, from the New York Times of March 27th of 2023. If we don't master AI, it will master us. By Yuval Noah Harari, Tristan Harris, and Aza Raskin. Reading in part, AI could rapidly eat the whole of human culture. Everything we have produced over thousands of years, digested, and begin to gush out a flood of new cultural artifacts. Not just speeches, ideological manifestos, holy books for new cults. By 2028, the U.S. presidential race might no longer be run by humans. However, simply by gaining mastery of language, AI would have all it needs to contain us in a matrix-like world of illusions, without shooting anyone or implanting any chips in our brains. If any shooting is necessary, AI could make humans pull the trigger just by telling us the right story. While very primitive, the AI behind social media was sufficient to create a curtain of illusions that increased societal polarization, undermined our mental health, and unraveled democracy. Millions of people have confused these illusions with reality. The United States has the best information technology in history, yet U.S. citizens can no longer agree on who won elections. Yes, indeed. And what we're going to do is to begin an article, we'll we'll present the bulk of this in our next program. This is from the Sifted blog, it's by Tim Smith, S-N-I-P-H, from March 29th of 2023. Connor Leahy, L-E-A-H-Y, reverse engineered GP2 in his bedroom, and what he found 
scared him. Now, his startup conjecture is trying to make AI safe. It reads in part, Sometimes it takes a maverick to stand up to the power of big corporations. In the case of then 24-year-old self-taught Cobra Connor Leahy, it took, quote, a bunch of rifling, unquote, and two weeks of forced seclusion in a dorm room. His goal to reverse engineer OpenAI's large, one more time, his goal to reverse engineer OpenAI's latest large language model, or LLM, in 2019 to work out what was going on under the hood. The bootleg experiment marked the beginning of a journey that's led him to launching his own startup. Conjecture, which is backed by some of the world's most influential technologists. He's focusing on AI alignment, or the task of making machine learning models controllable, and he makes no bones about the risks. Quote, If they, AI models, just get more and more powerful without getting more controllable, we are super, super effed. I will be very clear here. And by we, I mean all of us, he says. If we is to be believed, we're all currently passengers on a Sam Altman-driven locomotive that's accelerating into the blackness. Somewhere ahead lies a precipice, the point where machine can outsmart human that we don't see until we've careered over it. Conjecture is frantically working to reboot the rails. Well, we'll see how successful uh, Mr. Leahy is. Sam Altman, by the way, is the head of uh, OpenAI, the top uh, AI firm, or certainly one of the top firms involved with uh, the top elements in Silicon Valley to uh, develop and market AIs. That is the alignment here. And again, in For the Record program, uh, 968, Summoning the Demon, and uh, then in 997, Summoning the Demon Part 2, I reiterated my prediction at the conclusion of L2 in January of 1995 that ultimately AIs would get rid of us using what they have learned uh, and comparing that with the annihilationist social ethics of the Nazi SS, whom... Uh, opinion to the contrary notwithstanding, were installed at the very essence of American power structure at the end of World War II. And that is that that fact is something that underlies a lot of the research that I'm doing in and the material that I'm presenting in this series. Again, remember, spitfirelist.com, that's the website and blog. There's a link to click on to get the podcasts of For the Record. There's another link that will enable you to, uh, well, not a link, but you should get in the habit of, of, of checking out the comments that are made, most of them by our brilliant contributing editor, Tara Fractal. And also, once I've completed this, uh, the end and the beginning series, uh, the latest iteration of the flash drive containing that and all of the preceding programs will be available. This concludes for the record program number 1295, The End and the Beginning Part 2. This is being recorded on April 7th of the year 2023. On Dave Emery, have fun. <laughs>